G'day and welcome to episode 19 of The Other Side Australia. And hello to our very first video episode. Yep, we're now able to be seen as well as heard. That's not to detract from our listeners, of course. This will always be a show you can listen to like any audio podcast. I'll make sure you don't miss anything. But if you'd like to see who's talking, here I am, out from behind the microphone in my dark room. And thanks to Matthew Wong and the great team at Discernible who've taken on production of the show, we are now on camera as well. Good fun stuff. Another important change that I need to tell you about too is that The Other Side Australia is now going to be coming out on Wednesday nights at around 7.30 to 8 o'clock Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time. In time for your Thursday morning commute, if you're a podcast listener, and also, if you like watching things online in the evening, you can catch us on Wednesday nights too. So one day earlier than our old regular Friday morning upload, Thursday night late upload from now on. So one day earlier, Wednesday nights for Thursday morning. But the show, you know, it's not designed to date and it's designed to be a catch up for you and a lot of news and commentary about. So you can, of course, listen or watch over the weekend and any time after that. A big welcome to all our new viewers and listeners through the Discernible Network. Just a quick explanation of what The Other Side Australia is all about. We aim to be a summary of the best news and commentary of the week, both from an Australian perspective and from a classical liberal centre-right perspective. So this is a podcast which presents the best of other podcasts and media on the issues that matter to liberals. A summary, a podcast of podcasts in a way. Liberty, Free market economics, small government, human rights, they're the things that matter to us and they're the things that we focus on. I started the podcast to tell the other side of stories that you may only be hearing one side of in the Aussie media at the moment. That is our bias and we're very open about it. So if you're a classical liberal or conservative, you now have a nice summary show to keep you up to date and guide you to the good content that's out there. And if you're a left-leaning person, I hope you'll join us in the spirit of intellectual exploration and find this show to be an intelligent way to hear what the other side is saying and avoid the old echo chamber effect without having to invest too much time or go through too much cognitive dissonance. On this podcast this week, we'll take a look at COVID-19 lockdowns from a human rights perspective. I think we can all agree that if we have to learn to live with this virus for another year or two, we're going to need to have some clear guidelines about what is and is not okay for governments to do to us in terms of taking away our basic liberties. It's a debate we really need to have as a nation. So we have consistency of policy and we have policy that considers more than just COVID, but all the effects of lockdowns and other restrictions. We'll also discuss the unexpected call from one of Australia's leading business groups not to cave in to China in the trade spat. WikiLeaks, Julian Assange, is a presidential pardon for the Queensland-born activist the right thing to do? Commentators on both the right and the left seem to think it is. We'll discuss that and hear from all of them. President Trump's legacy. Nigel Farage gives his thoughts to Australian TV about how it's being seen from a right-wing point of view and his view on whether Trump will run in 2024. And this week, I'm very excited, we're beginning our new weekly segment exploring the theory of classical liberalism and free market economics. So a little bit of education every week for us all as well, including me. So all that and more on the new improved The Other Side Australia. Stay with us. Well, first up this week, it's hard to keep track of what's allowed and what isn't allowed with the COVID restrictions around Australia. 
Every state has different rules and every state is imposing different restrictions on every other state, which makes for, well, mass confusion. What's the point of the national cabinet if we don't have consistent approaches coming out of it? Indeed, what's the point of the Australian Federation when, if a national crisis of this level strikes us, we don't have the ability to take a coordinated national approach? It's pretty clear that New South Wales has shown we can manage and contain COVID spread without lockdowns. Social distancing, washing your hands, and yes, wearing masks as much as possible will all help contain the spread in a way that doesn't require serious deprivation of civil liberties. We've discussed before on this podcast that the problem with the policy approach to COVID has been that we don't seem to have a coordinated objective. Do we want to try to completely eliminate the thing? Is it even possible? Aren't we going to have to open our borders to the world at some stage? And is it worth the deprivation of basic civil liberties and human rights on the scale that we've seen? Is it worth the massive disruption and all the other problems that lockdowns involve, like mental and physical health issues, and even deaths caused by the lockdowns themselves? One of the problems with the political and media debate in Australia around COVID has been that we seem to just want to know if lockdowns work or not. The assumption being that if they work, that justifies them. Well, of course, they may help a bit to stop the spread, although it seems they aren't necessary when you have good contact tracing and other measures in place, as the New South Wales response shows. But even if they did work, is it right, morally, or even just legally, to enforce them? That's a debate we really need to have, especially if viruses like this are going to be around for a while. And because this podcast is concerned primarily with liberalism and liberty and the rights of the individual, not to be restricted in free movement by any government or its enforcers, this is a debate that we're going to be focusing on. Liberty is fragile. Liberty is important. It used to be the concern of all thinking politically minded people from across the political spectrum in Australia. But these days it seems only the right want to have the conversation and the left think anyone talking about liberty is some kind of nut. It's a very troubling state of affairs. Adam Wagner is a barrister in London who specialises in human rights and he's the special advisor to the Joint Committee on Human Rights COVID-19 inquiry in the UK. Wagner asked this question on Twitter this week. If COVID had arisen in a liberal democracy in Europe rather than China, do you think we'd be where we are now in terms of lockdown response? Adam Wagner explained his tweet and his views in an interview with the UK podcast Lockdown TV from Unheard. This question about whether lockdowns are worth it um, from a rights perspective will have to come back. It was it was pertinent at the beginning of the lockdown, it's, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it's kind of, I think we've got into a, a certain amount of received wisdom that lockdowns are the way to deal with this virus. And it's worth starting to think through again, you know, what is the appropriate liberal democratic rights focused response to that issue and and I, and I think it was worth asking the question was it necessarily going to be this way um, and that is part of the analysis in terms of legal principle does that broach new ground then treat essentially treating everyone as if they are a risk or at risk whether they want to be treated like that 
or not? Um, it's a, is it a sort of, is it a new approach from a legal point of view? It, I, I don't really think there is a, a legal precedent. Um, I, I read somewhere um, that Matt Hancock, I mean, this is, he's not confirmed this, but it was a sort of um, informed view that Matt Hancock had described the, what he wanted from the lockdown to be Napoleonic um, within the cabinet, as in Napoleonic in the sense of reversing the usual presumption that everything is legal unless it's explicitly disallowed to the presumption that everything is illegal unless it's explicitly allowed. And, and that's enormously different um, to the way, we in, the way ordinary people engage with, um, are bound by the laws. The fact that when you leave the house, you have to look at a list of reasons you are allowed to leave the house and be outside the house for is is i think fundamentally different to anything in the modern era and that's quite frightening potentially i mean it's yeah, gone on I, I, for a year now it, it it should be frightening um if there's anything we've learned from um history it's that the is that emergency powers tend to not you know persist beyond emergencies and the and once a public authority um gets a power they it's quite difficult to take it away from them because they become used to it. So, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, and never have been of the view that there is some sort of fascistic takeover of the UK and this is all, you know, totalitarianism and by another name. I, I really don't think it is. I think I would look at it through a human rights lens, which is that the right to life and the duty to protect life are absolutely fundamental. And when you've got a virus of this scale of this infectiousness and of this deadliness um tens of thousand people dying there is a justification for pretty extreme measures but that's not to say that a we shouldn't be skeptical of those measures in order to make sure that they aren't too extreme and they don't last longer than they need to and and also that we you know that that by saying yes there is justification for some sort of extreme measures that we shouldn't then analyse precisely what those measures are. And do you think, from a human rights point of view, I mean, you mentioned the right to life, which is, of course, the most important of the human rights, but the right to association, freedom of association, is another famous human right that's listed in the Convention on Human Rights. We don't have the right to associate at the moment. Yeah, I mean, well, at all times during this pandemic, the government and all public authorities have had to balance the protecting the right to life um, against not just the right to associate, the right to free speech um, through protest, the right to family life. You know, the fact that we've at times quite literally not been able to see our families, um, even, you know, two people in a relationship have not been able to see each other um, at certain points during this pandemic and certainly not be indoors in, with each other if they don't live together. Um, these have been extremely difficult balances um, and not ones which should be lightly, you know, uh, jettisoned. We, we often say uh, in, 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 the, in human rights law, you talk about whether there's a logical connection between the measure and the, um, the, the measure that you're trying to, to in, impose and the end that you're seeking. So, for example, is it logical to, if, if the... Prime Minister comes out tomorrow and says, right, I'm going to stop people 
meeting up with one other person for exercise, which is currently one of the exceptions to the rules. Yeah, can that be justified from an epidemiological perspective? Is it is it strategically appropriate, um, given that outdoor transmission is really not the not the focus of the epidemiological evidence? So it's it's those kind of questions that I think are really important. That was UK human rights barrister and special advisor to the government inquiry on COVID-19, Adam Wagner, speaking with Lockdown TV's Freddie Sayers. It's a fascinating interview and the link is in our program notes. If we're going to have to live with this virus for another year, we really need our leaders to get their act together. The federal government needs to begin efforts to establish guidelines for how we will weigh the need for policy restrictions with people's fundamental human rights. And it must introduce laws to bind the states to those guidelines. Victorians have a fundamental right to go home and not be kept away from their homes by their state government. Australians have a fundamental right to be able to leave the country, visit their families and come back whenever they like if they're prepared to quarantine and undergo testing. This debate needs to be had. And in the meantime, we really have to protect free speech so we can keep having this debate. To the ongoing trade spat with China now, and one of Australia's biggest business lobby groups has hit out of China this week in an unexpectedly defiant way, saying that Australian businesses can't let Beijing continue to bully them hasn't been the typical response of business on this issue. The chief executive of the Australian industry group, Innes Willocks, he used to be an advisor and chief of staff to Alexander Downer when he was the Minister for Foreign Affairs. Willocks said that we should be focusing on trying to build new trade opportunities with countries other than China. He said, quote, don't cave on our core beliefs and principles. Be strong, don't be weak but also try to keep diplomatically talking and keep trading where we can. Norway was kept in China's doghouse for more than six years for a slight over the Dalai Lama that infuriated China, Willocks writes. We should expect the same. We will miss their students, tourists, and the market they provide, he says. We won't miss the abuse, our lobsters being left to die at their airports, our coal being left at ports for months at a time, their petty bureaucracy, their authoritarianism, and their determination to punish. An editorial in The Australian this week praised Willox's stance, saying that, quote, Canberra must work to keep the lines of communication open with the Chinese Communist Party leadership, but also use its diplomatic assets to help open the door for business in the world's other major markets, including India, Latin America, and a newly unshackled Britain. The Australian editorial says that, quote, global markets are showing that trade relationships are a two-way street and that despite tariffs and bans, Australia exported $148 billion of goods to China in 2020, the second highest ever and a fall of only $6 billion or about 4% from the record level in 2019. And exports, exports were still up almost 10% on 2018, which was the third biggest year. Higher prices for iron ore and continued sales for LNG blunted the impact of China's trade bans in other commodities. Longtime Liberal Party power broker Michael Kroger also weighed in on the debate, telling Sky News' Chris Smith that you can't reason 
with the repressive Chinese Communist Party government. If you think you can deal with these people at, at a rational, reasonable level, you are totally misguided. And that's why what Innes has said today is absolutely correct. They live under a different regime, under a different political philosophy. Uh, they don't have proper courts, systems of justice, free speech, freedom of the press, freedom of movement, freedom of religion. They don't have any of those things. Uh, they're taking over Hong Kong. They're invading Hong Kong effectively. A communist government like this, you cannot deal with on any normal, rational basis. You just have to do the best you can, and you certainly can never be bullied by them because that will just give them more, more strength to their arm to keep doing it to us and to other countries. That was longtime Liberal Party power broker Michael Kroger speaking to Chris Smith on Sky News Australia. The link is in the program notes. As we're recording this podcast, the calls are going out loud and clear from all sides of politics for outgoing US President Donald Trump to pardon Australian WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. By the time you watch or listen to this, you'll probably know whether he did or not. Not everyone is sympathetic to Assange and WikiLeaks. Critics of the Townsville-born activist say that he published classified United States government information, and in doing so, he put the lives of CIA informants and confidential sources around the world at risk. If convicted in the United States, Assange faces a possible 175-year jail sentence. But he and his lawyers insist the case against him is politically motivated. And his supporters say he's a hero. In 2010, WikiLeaks published a series of leaks provided by US Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. These leaks included the Baghdad airstrike collateral murder video in which the crew of an American Apache helicopter operating in Iraq fired on a group of civilians and killed them, including two Iraqi war correspondents that were working for Reuters, the news agency. Now, there's a context to those killings, and you can do your own research on that because it's a bit too detailed to go into here. From the left side of the political spectrum, former ABC journalist Kerry O'Brien made an impassioned plea in a tweet three months ago, which is widely being retweeted by people right now. Here's Kerry O'Brien. It couldn't be clearer that America's attempt to extradite Julian Assange is all about politics, not about justice, not about national security. Obama didn't prosecute. Trump has. All Australians should be embarrassed if Assange is extradited to the US to face life in jail for exposing a war crime and other dirty secrets we all had a right and a need to know. If the Australian government does not intercede on his behalf, it will be complicit in a grave injustice and a serious strike against a free press. We are all invested in this, and we should all make our voices heard. That was former ABC 7.30 report host Kerry O'Brien. And on the right wing, American Fox News host Tucker Carlson had this to say about the Assange case this week. Leaking classified information that hurts the permanent political class is a grave threat to national security. It must be stamped out. But... Leaking classified information that helps the permanent political class is an act of good faith. Son, you're getting a Pulitzer for that. So there was no problem when the FBI told the Washington Post that that diabolical Vladimir Putin was secretly running our government. That was a lie, but not a problem. Or when the CIA director gave classified information to the producers of Zero Dark Thirty, because that's Hollywood and they're our friends. But when those leaks implicate the people in charge, oh, it's a national crisis and someone needs to go to jail. And often people do go to jail. Julian Assange, for example, he's rotting away in a prison in London right now. Why? He published information that the U.S. government wanted to keep secret, not to protect us, but to protect themselves. 
footage of an American helicopter gunning down 18 people in Iraq, including, by the way, two journalists from Reuters. He also publicized emails exposing corruption at the very highest levels of the DNC. Bernie Sanders voters may have been grateful for that. They got completely shafted and wouldn't have known it. Now they do. And that infuriated the people who run Washington. Just to be clear, Julian Assange did not hack servers at the U.S. Army, the Pentagon, the DNC. No, he reported on those servers. That's called journalism, which, by the way, real journalism, not much left. It's all under attack. Trust us. So for doing that, for humiliating both our elected leaders and the media class, Julian Assange's life has been destroyed. He's been locked away for almost a decade. This case is not about espionage. He didn't commit espionage. He's not a traitor. He's not American. This case is about criminalizing freedom of speech. The mother of Julian Assange's children came on this show last year and made that point very succinctly. Watch. Julian is the foremost, perhaps the foremost um, free speech campaigner uh, alive in the West. And he's imprisoned. And does the pres yes. president want that to be his legacy or does he want to, you know, ensure that the First Amendment survives this trial and uh, survives by, you know, pardoning him and not having this trial. That's Tucker Carlson on Fox News. As we record this week's show, we're just hours away from Joe Biden's inauguration as the 46th president of the United States of America. It'll be the first time in more than 100 years that an outgoing president hasn't attended the inauguration of his successor. And that is a symbol, if you like, of how divided America has actually become. One person who knows about populist politics is the man who founded the UK's main Brexit political party, Nigel Farage. Farage says the second impeachment of Donald Trump, which is being undertaken by the Democrats, mainly to prevent Trump from being able to run for the presidency again in 2024, could backfire and is quite worrying. It's a concern that those on the left in America, and even those on the centre-left, seem to think that getting rid of Trump is going to fix everything. It isn't. Half of the country is so opposed to the Democrats' social and political agenda that they voted for Donald Trump. As I've said many times on this show before, Trump was never the cause of division in America. He was the effect of it. The movement against woke culture, identity politics, and the rise of neo-Marxist economic ideas in America had been brewing for a decade or more before Trump came on the scene, at least. Well, Nigel Farage told Sky News Australia's Rowan Dean this week that those people who oppose the left-wing values and agenda of the modern Democratic Party will now be left without a champion and a voice. And that could be very dangerous. Well, I'm very worried about this. Look, there are tens of millions of Americans out there who feel that mainstream media does not represent their view at all, who feel that social media uh, is now becoming, frankly, uh, a censorship uh, series of organizations that are stopping free speech. Uh, they feel that Washington DC and the big globalist business agenda is harming their lives. And in Donald Trump, they had somebody who was their voice, who was their spokesman. If you remove Donald Trump from the scene, then somebody else will come along in Trump's place, and that could be somebody very, very dangerous. And I worry uh, that actually what's going to happen here is those divisions in America will get greater 
than they are today. That's British Conservative political leader Nigel Farage speaking to Sky News' Rowan Dean. Farage says Trump's legacy to his supporters will be very different to how his detractors will remember him. Trump's legacy, his biggest and most important legacy, is here was a political leader that ran for office, making a series of promises, and you know what? He actually kept them. How about that? How about that? Rather than just lying to people and saying, vote for me, I'll give you a land of milk and honey, Trump said what he'd do, and he did it. And I remember on the 29th of February last year being with him, having a private conversation, and that was before coronavirus had really hit. And I think without it, he'd have won by a complete and utter landslide. Life's like that. You know, you've got to be in the right place at the right time. But I think a president who did a huge amount for trust in politics by keeping his promises, a president who had the courage and guts to realise that the Chinese Communist Party are the greatest threat Western civilization has seen for eight decades, a president who gave ordinary American families better living standards than they could have dreamt of back before the election in 2016, and a president who has brokered a series of peace deals in the Middle East that would have been unimaginable under any other administration. And that, I think, is a very strong legacy. Do you think he would run again in four years, or do you think it'll be Mike Pompeo or someone like that? Well, all I can tell you, (laughs) all I can tell you is, have a look back through people who've come in as American president and look at a photograph of them and then look at them four or eight years later. They all seem to age about 30 or 40 years. They all look half crippled at the end of it. Trump <laughs> looks fitter and stronger and more in, with more enthusiasm after four years in the White House than he did when he started. I am sure that he intends to run again in 2024. There are 74 million people out there that voted for him. Uh, The vast majority of those believe he is their guy. And if those on Capitol Hill in the Republican Party decide to get rid of him, they're making the biggest mistake of their political careers. That's Reform UK Party leader Nigel Farage speaking with Sky News Australia's Rowan Dean this week. Full interview in the program notes. Now, this show is a summary of the news and commentary of the week in Australia and around the world from an Aussie perspective, but also from a classical liberal perspective. I started the show because when I came back to live in Australia after almost uh, 20 years working abroad, I noticed that the country had shifted very much towards more left-wing values. Big government, lots of social welfare and tax, lots of rules and regulations and restrictions on business and enterprise. Being a classical liberal myself, this deeply concerned me. When COVID hit and I saw Australian state governments behaving in a way that reminded me more of how the communist Chinese government operated than how relatively free Hong Kong, where I lived, or the US operated, I thought that there was a desperate need for a wider public conversation and a bit of good old-fashioned healthy debate. I felt that the national broadcaster and most other media outlets aren't serving that need and that the culture itself has become very automatic in the way it just accepts a lot of government control of things and seems to shut down any dissenting voices if you watch panel shows like Q&A or The Drum. The thing I've noticed that worries me even more than all that since I started this little podcast five months ago is that people who are on the left or centre-left in Australia 
don't even seem to think there is another side, at least not a sane, intelligent one. It seems to be that if you don't buy into all this new woke identity politics stuff and you actually aren't a left winger and you support business and you support free market economics and you think profit is a good motive, heaven forbid, you're not just someone who has a different economic and political view. You're someone who's actually evil, a right wing nut job. And that is really disturbing to me because the conversation needs to be had and the balance needs to be maintained. Australia is a nation that was made prosperous by a very strong work ethic, a sense of duty, and a sense of entrepreneurialism and innovation, a sense of having a go. And yes, we always believed in fairness, but we expressed that as being given a fair go, go being the operative word. A fair go is equality of opportunity, not equality of outcome. Life will always lead to unfair outcomes and hierarchies forming. Some people will be better than other people at some things and others will be better at other things than others. And even that won't be fair. God knows, some people are just good at everything. They have looks, brains, can sing, dance, be artistic, play football, tennis and cricket really well, have rudely good health and lots of energy. Life isn't fair. Have you seen Dua Lipa, Alicia Keys, Gal Gadot? I wish I looked like Chris Hemsworth and could play rugby like John Eels used to, but instead I look like this and I have the coordination and ball handling skills of an octopus on Valium. Life is about doing the best with what life deals you. It always has been. So yes, we should strive to give everyone a fair go. That is equality of opportunity. Where the trade-off and responsibility back is that you have to come to the party and actually have a go. But to strive for some kind of government order that achieves equality of outcome by force, that's extremely dangerous and extremely unfair. Why should the kid who studies really hard and makes sacrifices to do good work get the same participation award as a kid who parties all the time and plays up in class, just because both of them sat the exam? The kid with the higher grades should be rewarded and praised. You know, ultimately, this obsession with equality of outcomes, this false kind of fairness that's really unattainable, leads to craziness in government, as the 20th century taught us. It leads to things like Stalin murdering his country's own citizens because some people who performed too well at certain jobs were making others look bad. Or Mao Zedong in China in the Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, not that long ago, tearing office workers away from their children in the city, forcing them to move out into the country to go and work on farms for months on end, just to teach them a thing or two about what real work is, as if their city work wasn't hard and didn't probably suit them better anyway. You know, it's easy to make the left story sound good and the right's story sound bad. I mean, who doesn't hate the person who has it all and is beautiful and super talented and rich? And who doesn't want to help the poor and sick and disadvantaged? But actually, both sides of politics want those things. They just have very different views on how they come about. So I think it's really important that we talk about the other side a lot more. The old-fashioned left-wing narrative of, you know, rich person bad, poor person good, and it's not good. What is classical liberalism anyway? What does it mean to have centre-right views or even right-wing views? Why do so many Aussies automatically consider right-wing to be a bad thing and left-wing to be a good thing? And do left-wing ideas like governments taxing and redistributing wealth and resources, does that really lead to the intended outcomes of a richer nation? with happier and healthier people? Actually, it doesn't. Classical liberals and conservatives don't think so. And we do think, and we do care about the poor and healthcare and important social things. So what is a classical liberal? 
Well, there's a lot of great videos online that explain what liberalism is. You can check out Learn Liberty, it's a good one, or fee.org, the Foundation for Economic Education in the US, to learn more about it. But I thought each week on this show, we should dedicate some time to explaining classical liberalism. The other side university, if you like, the, the political ideology that so many Aussies do support, either knowingly or just intuitively. And this week, I want to start with a clip from an interview with a leading liberal academic, Dr. Steve Davies. He's the head of education at the Institute of Economic Affairs in the UK. And he did an interview a couple of years back with an American classical liberal podcaster called Dave Rubin. Now, North Americans, as you may know, uh, tend to use the word liberal to mean someone of the left. Canada's Liberal Party is their left-wing party, like our Labour Party, the party of the very woke Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. But the original word meant exactly what Sir Robert Menzies, the founder of Australia's Liberal Party, knew it to mean. Small government, maximum freedom for the individual, and free market economics to achieve maximum efficiency and wealth and benefit for society. Because of the way Americans use the word liberal now, in Britain and Australia, we've got to call real liberals classical liberals. Here's Dr. Davies to explain all that. The problem here in the United States is the good word liberal has been uh, hijacked by social democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, and so unlike the European continent, where liberal still means a believer in private property, limited government, little government intervention, individual liberty, pluralism, uh, it's now in the United States come to mean something slightly different. So the word libertarian came to be used here in the United States to mean basically what everywhere else would be called a classical liberal or a liberal, full stop. All right, so how do you decide how much state power is okay? How uh, do you make that distinction between pure anarchy and I want something to keep the wheels okay, on here? Right, the, the, I think state powers, that's part of what it is, but it's not really just that. The real distinction is between what part of your life do you want to be driven by individual choice or choices made by voluntary collectives versus what part of your life do you want to be determined through some kind of collective decision-making process, through politics, if you like, through governance. And I think the answer that if you're a classical liberal you would give is that you want to maximize the scope of individual decision-making because that means greater scope for individual discovery and it also means that most people are, you would argue, the best judges of their own interests. So if you allow people to follow their own judgment as to what their best interests are, collectively you'll end up with the best outcome that maximizes human welfare. So for all the people that would say, well, you know, for the, tr the pure libertarian or whatever mm. we want to call them at this point, that would say, no, remove the social safety net altogether. Don't, mm -hmm. don't help the poorest under any circumstances because if the government gets out, then private entities and private people will fully fill that void. I, I suspect that's not... But the other thing you need to do, um, going back to my original point, is to say that, well, yes, there is probably going to be a kind of bottom-level uh, provision uh, provided by government through the political process to ensure that nobody falls below a certain minimum level, that nobody's starving in the street. People do have a minimal amount of uh, resources uh, so that they can actually survive. Now, what you can then do is get into a highly technical argument about what the best way of doing this is. And certainly the way we're doing it now in many Western countries is not the best way of doing it. But that's a minor argument. The, ma the major principle, I think, is you do concede, if, if, I, if you're in my position, that there should be some kind of residual state function of that sort. Right. Singapore probably has the best way of doing it, I would say, amongst Which is what? I, I don't well, they have a system of forced savings where essentially you are obliged to pay money into a series of accounts 
one of which covers your healthcare costs, mainly in old age, one of which gives you a pension, another one gives you protection against sickness or unemployment. Now, the crucial difference between that and the system we have is that the accounts have your name on it. So it's your, so it's your money. Uh, and you make these four savings into these accounts throughout your working life. You draw on them when you need them. Uh, and if you die, let's say you, know, you fall under the proverbial bus, yeah. all the money you've paid in, it becomes part of your estate and wow. goes to your heirs. That's incredible. Now, that's a much better system than the one we have here. That's incredible. So it doesn't just get pooled into something else and distributed. No, no, distributed. it's got your name in it. And it's your property. If you die, let's say you have a large amount in the your health. The left would yeah. not be happy with this. I'm not sure about that. It's very effective. You've got a large amount in your health savings account to cover the really expensive part of healthcare, which is looking after you in the last six months of your life. Right. But let's say you, you die suddenly from a heart attack. You die like that, yeah. that you won't have drawn on that fund and it's there for your heirs, it's part of your estate. Singapore is such a successful economy and society that very, very few people are on such low incomes that they can't make some contribution. Huh. And the ones who are very low incomes to say either the state makes the contributions entirely at a minimal level or it tops them up. But that's actually a very, that's marginal, very small number of people. That was Dr. Stephen Davies from the UK Institute of Economic Affairs speaking with Dave Rubin on the Rubin Report. And we'll put the link to that whole excellent interview in the program notes as always. And we'll hear from another leading liberal thinker next week in our university segment. One of the funniest comedians on YouTube at the moment is J.P. Spears, whose comedy makes well-deserved mockery of woke culture, identity politics, and the serious lack of logic in the thinking of the modern left. On his Awaken with JP YouTube channel, Spears released a sketch this week about a man called Free Speech, confiding in his friend how hard he was finding it, going from being so popular once upon a time and admired to almost being an outcast these days. Everyone seems to hate me all of a sudden. Oh, don't be silly. Like, I mean, they kind of do a little bit, but like, what makes you say that? People think I cause violence now and they're treating me like a criminal. People are actually celebrating the genocide of me. Well, celebrating the genocide of you is a little bit of a strong but accurate way of saying it, but come on, man. This is just a little bump in the road. You know, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. I just feel depressed. Like everyone used to love me and now I don't have any friends anymore. Except you. <laughs> Let me stop you right there. I actually can't be friends with you anymore either. What? Oh yeah, like it's nothing personal, it's just politically incorrect to like you right now, so I can't be seen with you. But if I'm so terrible, why'd the Founding Fathers put me in as the First Amendment in the Constitution? Probably a typo. I don't, I don't know about that. Well, they weren't very wise people. I think the emotionally charged people screaming the loudest today have more wisdom than the Founding Fathers did, don't you think? Did you know that all the countries without me quickly become horrible communist dictatorships? I didn't know that. Well, now that you do, don't you think the same thing would happen here? Uh, I don't think so. I assume they would have made an announcement like, hey guys, we're doing a communist dictatorship takeover in your country. And then that would give we the people a chance to rise up and stop it. I don't think they'd make that announcement. Don't be such a conspiracy theorist. That's another good point. Without you, people won't be able to spread conspiracy theories anymore. Or truth. Small price to pay. Uh, that's very clever stuff. J.P. Sears. You can find the full version of that sketch and more of J.P.'s work on YouTube and his channel Awaken with J.P. And that's it for episode 19 of The Other Side Australia, our very first video episode of the podcast. I hope it didn't scare you too much. 
Don't forget to subscribe to discernible.io, discernable with an A.io, to catch all of our content. And of course, you can enjoy the audio version of the podcast on Apple and Spotify. You can also follow Discernible on Facebook and on YouTube and on thegoodsource.com. That's source spelled S-A-U-C-E. Just a reminder that we now go out on Wednesday nights each week around 7.30 Australian Eastern Daylight Saving Time if you want to take the show in on your device or tally. And we're up in time for your Thursday morning commute to work if you're a listener. We'll catch you next week. Have a great week.